I do want to note that in your bulletin, the title has changed slightly, but significantly. So if you want to make a note of the title, it's not what loving Jesus looks like. I want to focus on what a life of loving Jesus looks like. Um, So let me open in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is, it is so easy to get lost. It is so easy to think of details without thinking of foundation and cohesive whole. It is so easy to hear something and go off on tangents. I pray this morning as we look at multiple passages that you would guide us to understand that foundational, fundamental, basic reality that you are a God of love and when we know you, we cannot but respond in love. As John says in 1 John 4, we love because you have first loved us. But I pray that you would give us richness, depth, understanding of what loving you means. Because that's a concept that is broad and frequently vague and capable of many tangents. And so I pray that as we sit before you and we hear your word, that you would pull back the curtains and you would give us greater clarity today about what it looks like for us to live lives that love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin, I want to make a a couple of ancillary points, Um, just some things that will help set the context for what we're going to be looking at today. When we talk about faith, hope, love, fear, duty, those are concepts, but they're incredibly broad. We talk about, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and we think, well, my faith is what's important. We think 1 Corinthians 13, how critically important love is. So I have to be a loving person. But these concepts require objects. Faith in. I can have faith in the fact that I'm going to eat lunch. That faith doesn't do a whole lot for me except extend my waist. I can have Love for ice cream. I can have love for my dog. I can have love for my wife. It is the object of love that is critical. I can hope. I can hope I'm going to wake up tomorrow six feet four. Hasn't worked yet. The object is all important. The second thing I want to point out is that we use language that is vague. The passage that I'm going to preach from this morning, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Again, love is an incredibly vague thing. The only thing we know from Jesus' words as he went from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane that qualifies that love is obedience. 
But Scripture speaks with great richness about the character of loving God. So I want you to think for a moment, and only a moment, because I'm not giving you too much of my time. I want you to think about why do I do what I do? And I want you to think about the role of fear, duty, and love. So take a moment, think about why you do what you do. You can take something you've done this week, something you're preparing to do, but why? And in particular, where do faith, where, where do fear, duty, and love play a role in why I'm going to do what I'm going to do? going to take back the pulpit. Um, I do want you to think more on that question in light of what we're going to look at in this, in this sermon. Um, let me read John 14, verses 15 through 24. Again, this is set in the walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane prior to Jesus' arrest. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord... (laughs) How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and make our home. And and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. I want you to think about fear, duty, and love. Those are three of the primary motivations for the decisions we make on how to act. You might obey the speed limits out of duty. It's the law, it's right, it's good, it's safe, I'll go ahead and do it. Now, I could quite probably be very safe going 20 miles over the speed limit, but out of duty and an obedience, I'll do the speed limit. On the other hand, you might keep the speed limits out of fear. 
there are speed cameras. I don't like tickets. I fear the effect on my bank balance. I'm going to keep the speed limits. The question for fear and duty, what do I avoid paying? What do I gain? If I'm living with the motivation of fear or the motivation of duty, I'm living with a focus on me. That's a critical thought. Because what that is, honestly, is selfishness. I'm looking for my well-being. I will take care of myself. I am not going to go through difficulties. Selfishness is self-worship. It's idolatry. It's sin. What do the Father, the Son, and the Spirit deserve? We're told in Deuteronomy 6, 5, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And again, love is a concept that is left somewhat undefined. But we're told that we are called by the very created order and the existence of God to love him. So today I want to look at three particular passages that demonstrate lives that love God. The first is going to be Genesis 22, the story of Abraham as he's commanded to offer his son Isaac. For sake of time, I'm not going to take the time to read each of the passages, but the passage here is Genesis 22, 1 through 19. I encourage you to make note of that passage and later today read and reflect upon it because there are details I'm going to bring out that I hope you will see in the passage as you read it firsthand. But we know the story of Abraham. At age 75, he was promised a son. 25 years later, when he was 100, Isaac was born. Now, he'd gone through a number of different difficulties trying to figure out how he could fulfill God's promise of son when Sarah was not conceiving. Abraham, like us, had an attitude and a pattern of trying to figure out what God was trying to do, and when God apparently wasn't getting the job done, Abraham stepped in. And Abraham would do, in his own strength, what God apparently wasn't able to do in his. Arrogance. But isn't that like us? I want you to put yourself in Abraham's position as God gives the command to offer Isaac. The promises were to come through Isaac. And in the passage in in Hebrews 11 that we'll refer to briefly, Abraham understands the context of this command is the context of promises being fulfilled to bless the nations through 
Isaac. And, and yet, the command that Abraham received from God in Genesis 22 was to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Okay. It took God a long time to give me Isaac, and now God is asking me to do something that would, humanly speaking, make it impossible for the promises to come through Isaac. Abraham has a pattern of taking matters into his own hands. In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20, not long before this passage, twice Abraham went in the presence of a powerful king, first was Pharaoh, the second was Abimelech, recognizes that he has a very beautiful wife. And Abraham, thinking that it's not really safe to have a beautiful wife in the presence of a king who may like beautiful wives. And so Abraham, in order to protect himself, told Pharaoh and Abimelech that she was his sister, which apparently was true. She was the half-sister, but not a full sister, but she was also his wife. What do I have to do to be safe? How do I have to manipulate circumstances to get what I want? But in this passage, Abraham does something different. He doesn't quibble with God like he did about destroying Sodom. He doesn't negotiate. He says, yes, sir. And he takes two men and Isaac, and he loads the donkey and goes to the mountain that God had commanded. And he says to the two men, we will come back down, stay here. Now, you might think he's just saying whatever he needs to, not to raise a ruckus and get to the top of the mountain where he's going to do the dastardly deed. But Abraham doesn't give any indication that he's trying to fix a problem that God has created. I would. Oh, my goodness. You're asking me to do two contradictory things, and I can't make that work. What am I going to do? Abraham, on the other hand, is a man who's living with integrity. You said it, God. I'm going to obey. He goes up the mountain with Isaac. He has knife. He has fire. He has wood. Isaac even says to him, I see everything except the sacrifice. Abraham's answer is, the Lord will provide. And then he immediately ties Isaac up. Oh, and by the way, Isaac, the Lord provided you. He places Isaac on the altar, and he's ready to sacrifice Isaac, and God says, stop. Now, I want you to think for a moment what is it you focus on in Abraham? What is it that strikes you about Abraham in this story? Is it faith? Is the point that God is trying to make for us in this story the incredible faith that Abraham has and how we should try to have faith like Abraham? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point at all. 
I think what Abraham had come to understand was the character of God. Abraham understood that he could trust a loving God. There was no safety net. Abraham didn't have a pack animal in the back of his group as he went up the mountain with Isaac to be able to offer instead of Isaac. Abraham believed God was going to do something good. Abraham believed that God was acting and commanding Abraham to act out of love. Yes, Abraham did have faith, but Abraham's faith was in a God who loved and whose love engendered a loving response on Abraham's part. What I think we're called to focus on in this story of Abraham is his love for God. In Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, particularly in verse 19, we're told in the hall of faith that Abraham believed God could even raise the dead. When Abraham said, we will come back down the mountain, when Abraham said, God will provide the sacrifice, he meant it. I don't think he understood all of what God was going to do, but he knew God was going to accomplish good, and he knew that he and Isaac would travel back down the mountain and rejoin his men. Abraham's focus was on being in love with and in community with God. As we look later on in the Old Testament at Daniel, the next two stories that I want to look at this morning that demonstrate something similar to this are Daniel 3, verses 8 through 25, and Daniel 6, verses 1 through 22. These are the two stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are men who had come from Jerusalem with Daniel. They were some of those young men that had been brought from Jerusalem into the palace of Nebuchadnezzar and educated and trained and raised to roles of provincial authority. And what's happening in Daniel 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to unify his empire. And so he was creating a 90-foot-tall statue that he had wrapped in gold, and commanded that everyone, in order to build unity in the empire, everyone, whenever they heard a musical instrument, I'm not going to read the list. It is frustrating in in Daniel 3 because that list appears at least three times, and it's at least four or five verses each time. You almost stop reading the story simply because the list of of, of musical instruments... But everyone was told that at the sound of a musical instrument being played, they were responsible to fall down and worship this idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't comply. And the Chaldeans, those who were rivals of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in provincial government, 
who really wanted to get rid of anyone that was a threat to their power and their position, ratted them out. That seems like a rather crass way to talk about it, but when you read the Hebrew, it talks about the malice and the evil intended by the Chaldeans toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in bringing this up. I do, I do want to read their response. It's Daniel 3, beginning in verse 8. It, it's, it's astounding. Let me just set the context. Whenever you hear anyone responding to or initiating conversation with Cyrus, Darius, Nebuchadnezzar, any emperor, any authority... One of the first things you say is, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you are great, you are wonderful, you are magnificent. The world moves around you. Listen to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar, who's already described as furious. In fact, he is irate. This is a threat to his authority. Therefore, at that time, certain time, Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. That's cleaned up language. If you read the original, it's really stark. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, and listen to their response. O king, live forever. You, O king, made a decree that every man who hears the sound of horn, pipe, I'm sorry, I'm reading it. I'll stop. Shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In furious rage, he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve me, my gods, or worship the gold image that I have set up? Listen to their response, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, no, O King Nebuchadnezzar, no, O great and mighty Oz, no magnificent and astounding one, O Nebuchadnezzar, it gets worse. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Think of Esther, terrified of going into her husband unbidden, because she knows that if she goes in and he does not extend the golden scepter, saying, yeah, you didn't follow protocol, but it's okay, I like you. She would die. Nehemiah, as he goes in and is sad, was terrified and spent days fasting before he went in in order to talk about the walls of Jerusalem. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, they show no fear. They're not even showing propriety. They are in a cosmic battle. They don't fear the emperor, and they don't fear death. 
Listen to what they say. If this be so, in other words, if you do throw us into the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Okay, so you might think that this is just faith, that this is them saying, look, we know which side to pick. We're safe. Our God will do what is necessary to take care of us. But this is not duty. This is not self-focus. This is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, no, 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 you can't compare the power of our God. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We have a God. We know him. We believe in him. And in fact, we love him so much that we would give our lives in a fiery furnace in order to love him. They act out of love. And certainly faith is a component of that. But it's because they know who their God is. They know his character and they respond in love to his love. These are people who've been taken from their homeland. These are people who have been put into a palace not with people they know. They've been put into positions of authority and still the God they know is a God of love that they trust and love. Daniel chapter 6. The third story, Daniel himself. We've seen Daniel throughout the story of the book of Daniel refuse to disobey God. But it's not out of fear and it's not out of duty. That's what's astounding. Daniel is tested by his enemies. And and frankly, in our church culture, the word we most associate with Daniel is faith. Dare to be a Daniel. It's a song in our hymnal. It's a song that I think actually makes Daniel roll over in his grave. Because Daniel's focus isn't Daniel. That's the whole point. Abraham was not focused on Abraham, and he wasn't even focused on Isaac. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not focused on their own lives. They were not focused on their well-being. They were focused on the God that they love. Daniel. Daniel's amazing. The test that's set up is that you cannot make a petition of any God or man in all of Persia for 30 days other than Darius the emperor. In other words, what they did was they set up a situation in which if Daniel were to pray, which is to ask, if Daniel were to pray to the God that he loves for 30 days, he would die. A horrible death. But the amazing thing is that the Chaldeans, oh, there's the Chaldeans again. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Chaldeans, Daniel, the Chaldeans. It's people who are jealous of position, power, and authority, which were so important for the Chaldeans that they would do anything in order to gain more. Certainly, Daniel doesn't want to lose power. He doesn't want to lose wealth. He doesn't want the quality of life to go down. He's not willing to risk those things in order to be with God. When Daniel hears the command, the first thing he does is he goes home. He has a window in his home that faces towards Jerusalem. He opens the window, he gets on his knees. And he prays. And the Chaldeans come and find him engaged in breaking the law of Darius. Busted. We don't get any account of Daniel doing anything except saying guilty. Do what you need to do. Darius sets his mind to save Daniel, but he can't find a way. Darius had made the law, and the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be overturned. Daniel has to go to the lion's den. But Darius spends the night, we are told, fasting. Now, to understand the way that the rulers tended to operate, magnificent feasts every night, entertaining all of your government officials, Wonderful entertainment, wonderful celebrations. Every meal was just amazing. Darius, the night that Daniel's in the lion's den, fasts. Now, we have an understanding that there is a connection between fasting and prayer. Darius didn't celebrate. He wasn't in his wonderful clothes. He wasn't hanging out with all the important people. He didn't have great entertainment. He went into his private spaces and fasted. Darius's command was, you cannot ask anything of anyone in the kingdom for 30 days but Darius. Who was Darius praying to? It says he couldn't sleep. First thing in the morning when he got up, he went to the lion's den. He opened the stone, called down to Daniel... Daniel, did your God save you? Daniel's kind of like, yeah, I'm here. Lions are peaceful over on the other side of the den. It's, It's cool. God knew I was righteous. God spared me. I don't think Daniel was focused on whether or not he would go from the lion's den to Darius's palace or whether he would go from the lion's den to the throne of God. It didn't matter to him. For Daniel, for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and at this point for Abraham, the issue was the presence of God. I want to be with the one I love. I want to do what pleases the one I love. I want to live for the joy of the one I love. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What he's saying is the love we have for him is the focus of our lives. It is the motivation for our actions, our thoughts, our words. 
No one could separate Daniel from God. In Joshua 1, we read God speaking to Joshua early in his ministry. In fact, what God says, he begins what he says to Joshua with, Moses, my servant, is dead. Okay. And then God says to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says to us in John 10, I know my sheep and my sheep hear my voice. No one can snatch them from my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from the Father's hands. Brothers and sisters, we live in the presence of God. That was what Abraham, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel did too. But we live in the presence of God in clearer ways. We've seen, we've understood, we've seen the gospel worked out, we've seen Christ come, we've seen him live, we recognized his sacrificial death, we're aware of his resurrection, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us today. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. We live in the presence of God. So the application for us today, what does it mean that we live in the presence of God? How do we see God? Do we see God demanding? Do we see God harsh? Do we see God loving? I think the way for us to look at this is the question, what is most deeply true? What is most fundamentally true of God? Is his deepest characteristic demanding? I mean, just going to pull things out of us? Is his deepest characteristic harsh? Because he is demanding, and he is at times harsh. Or is it that God is loving? And that because of his love, there are times he must make demands. But we need to see those demands in the context of love. When he's harsh, because he is harsh, he judges sin. Is his harshness built upon his love? What is most deeply true about the character of God? We live in a really amazing period in redemptive history. We have Gethsemane. We have Calvary. We have the resurrection. We have the ascension. We have Pentecost. What does Gethsemane in particular and Calvary in particular teach me about the deep character of God? In my understanding, Gethsemane teaches a love that cannot be challenged. At his deepest, most fundamental identity, the Son of God proves his love. I don't want to do this. I know what's coming. I don't want to face the judgment of the Father and the Spirit. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done, both because of his love for the Father, but because of his love for us. 
the difficulties that Abraham, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel faced, and, and they were all life-threatening, either their son's life or their own. All of them faced situations which would easily move us to say, God, I thought you loved me. You can't put me in this place if you love me. Oh, yes, he can, because there are bigger things in play. The deep character of God is love. What you face, and I don't question that you face difficulties, trials, and hardships, but what you face, you face out of the love of God. So the question that I want you to think about is, what can I do this week to grow in my love for God? What can I do this week to grow in my love for God? And I think, honestly, it's to look at and see the character of love as God demonstrates it from Genesis to Revelation. I think it's beginning to look, not simply at Scripture, but at your own life experiences to see where those things that you have attributed to something other than love indeed come from and flow out of God's love for you. How you interpret your experiences defines how you view God. What ways can I understand the trials that I face, whether it's offering my son on the mountain, whether it's going to the fiery furnace, whether it's being thrown into a lion's den, whether it's an ethical dilemma at work, whether it's the fact that my finances are rocky, whatever it may be, how you interpret those circumstances must, from a biblical perspective, flow out of the truth of the love of God and understand a broader perspective that he's capable of raising the dead. I don't know what he's doing, and I don't know why he's doing it, but I know the one who's doing it, and I trust him. When you think about how you can grow in your love for him, I want you to recognize, out of that love, how do I want to live? What can I do this week, not only to grow in my love for God, but to live that love in the daily events? Where am I tempted to compromise? Where am I tempted to outright disobedience? Where am I simply ignoring God? And repent. See God for who he is. And love him. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who not only talks about the importance of loving you, but you are one who shows us what that means. And I do pray that by your Spirit's work in our hearts, our minds, and our lives, that you would give us a richer, deeper understanding of your love so that we might actually and consistently obey the command to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength. Because that is not a command to oppress and weigh us down. That is an opportunity we have to respond to the love that you pour out on us. And as we come to the table, I pray that you would give us grace to see that this table is even further demonstration of your love for us, that you would feed us spiritually, that you would give us strength and grace to be able to live lives that bring you joy. 
And I pray, Lord, that as we come to this table, that you would energize us and that you would give us a richer love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.